Hello, friends. Welcome to Mr. Rewatch. This is your Mr. Robot Recap podcast brought to you by a stand-up comedian and a depressive hacker. I'm Aaron. And I'm Devlin. So it's been a little while since I've asked you, but I wondered if you'd been up to anything interesting since we recorded last. <laughs> uh, well, it's actually been a pretty busy week with a lot of unexpected twists and turns. Um, I remember that that was a question we would ask each other before every episode when we were recording back in season one. So I guess everything will just become new again. Well, I feel like the theme of this season is uh, reusing old motifs to reinforce new ideas. So I thought it would be a good time to ask you. <laughs> well, thank you. I think that we've been up to a lot of the same things. And um, maybe you can give it a bit of a drum roll and introduction. Absolutely. So I think that we've had a pretty exciting week uh, here on the show. And I think part of what makes this podcast really great, aside from the fact that I really like spending time with Devlin and Dave, uh, is that our listeners are super engaged and super smart. So this is a big thank you to all of you for spending your time with us each week, for answering the questions that we can't answer, for engaging with us on Twitter. And one thing I really want to thank you for is I asked a hypothetical question uh, of uh, the listenership uh, through our Twitter account. If you had the chance to ask Martin Wallstrom anything, what would you ask him? And so, Devlin, this week we were actually able to speak to Martin. Yeah, and that was a great experience. I was saying that this week had a bunch of twists and turns, and that's because we had kind of organized this interview with Martin before we knew what was going to happen to his character. We did. And so what we want to say is that all of the questions you put to us were really great. And some of them touched on themes we had already planned to ask about. And just because of the limitations of time, we tried to kind of collapse themes together. Um, and we were only able to ask so many things. So we tried to acknowledge the direct askers of those questions. But really, we want to thank every one of you who put some thought into it and really helped us make this conversation with Martin a great one. And so you're going to be able to download that episode today as well. Now, I think it was really an important time to talk with Martin because, of course, this episode has some pretty significant developments for his character. Yeah, I feel like we had the impression this would be a Tyrell episode, but maybe not that it would be um, this kind of Tyrell episode. And they kind of um, stick uh, some very character-changing events for him in at the very end of the episode with some kind of ambiguous visuals, and it makes it um, all the more concerning. I have a note to myself that this is the episode where people came for Tyrelliot content and got Dom Lean content instead. <laughs> I bet that you can make some kind of uh, meme about that. Come for Tyrelliot, stay for Dom Lean. Yeah. The first scene of the episode starts off with Tyrell and Elliot in Elliot's apartment. So remember at the end of episode three, uh, Tyrelliot came, came in excited as anything to share his good news with Elliot, news that is going to propel their collective goals forward. And Elliot quickly scribbles that Dark Army is listening. And so the first scene is them, I think, are they kind of awkwardly trying to de-escalate? Yeah, it seems like once Tyrell read that note, he realized uh, what his mistake was and what danger he was in by saying these things about the Dark Army while they might be listening. Um, the 
episode here does pick off right at the um, end of the previous episode. So we get a glimpse into what's happening in the van that turns out to be doing surveillance. So Elliot was totally right about um, him being tailed by the Dark Army. And some people are actually listening into the conversation. The stuff that Elliot says about being out of disk space and needing to change the partitions, are those all made up words? <laughs> um, well, I mean, they're, they're words that kind of like make sense on their own, but in the context, you can tell that he's just bluffing about it. I think that it's something that probably would sound like tech jargon to a person who was just listening on the line. It sounded just like tech jargon to me listening to the episode. <laughs> Did it surprise you that Terrell is the person who goes to the van and actually takes out the dark army soldier <laughs> well it did surprise me but if anybody had to do it it was tyrell i guess and i know that he's willing to take things to such extreme measures so um bearing in mind that there was the possibility of him being listened in on um i can see why he would do that although it really would have sucked if it was actually like a florist or something yeah can you imagine some poor unfortunate florist just trying to make a delivery to Elliot. Yeah, first Sharon Knowles and now this. <laughs> yeah, things just keep going sideways for this guy. Um, one thing I notice about this season is I think a lot of characters are not acting like themselves in the way that we know them to. And I see Terrell in this episode, maybe for the first time. And I know he's a leader in his corporate job, but being a leader in terms of taking charge of his own destiny, because He's the first person to the van. He takes charge of the whole effort. Uh, we'll talk about later uh, to get rid of evidence. You know, he's a guy on the move in this episode. And I don't think that's how we've seen him in season three. No, in fact, I think um, throughout the history of his character, although we do know him as a leader, he's mostly been propelled um, by Joanna's ambitions. And she was normally the one who was um, instructing him and guiding him along that path. So it's some different behavior out of Tyrell, but um, maybe that's kind of just how he responds to being in distress like this. And he kind of realizes that he has to take charge. You know, those people who get really calm in a crisis and very decisive. <laughs> maybe that's this guy. The analogy I was going to use is that Tyrell is like me in an escape room where I just need to check everything right away and <laughs> move along through every puzzle as soon as possible. Well, I'll remember that next time we're in an escape room. <laughs> They believe the Dark Army soldier is dead. Now, in this episode, we're going to be cutting between three main storylines. And so if you've seen the episode, I think everything will make sense to you. But the cutaway scene now is that Darlene is making a phone call to Elliot. Yeah, and it's quite explicit. She seems to be kind of upset at him right now. I guess she has all the reasons being given how he treated her when they last met up. But it still is a little more ruthless than Darlene tends to be. I have to say, and I was only a tourist in New York, but I actually think this is a very New York scene where I noticed that people have uh, conflict in public there a lot. <laughs> and maybe it's because they have such tiny living spaces that there's really no space to have these kinds of arguments. But I witnessed a number of phone conversations just like this one. So I felt this was very site specific and well executed. It definitely is a New York moment, but given Toronto is kind of like uh, Canada's New York, I just had an encounter where somebody was having a loud fight in a grocery store and then started throwing apples around. Like physically throwing the apples? Or more like knocking them off the counter, but yeah, they were really upset. Darlene is uh, pretty furious, uh, but the reason for her call, she ultimately deletes that message where she tells Elliot that she doesn't care if he lives or dies. 
the point of it, she had been waiting for him at All Safe or the Nerd Farm <laughs> because they were supposed to complete their hack. But Olivia's account doesn't actually have the access they need. So they're going to need to get physical access to a server at a company called Virtual Realty. Which she happens to be outside right now. So she's scouting the location. She doesn't really understand why he's not picking up. So she's going to head to his apartment and make things happen. Now, I did have a listener theory today. I don't know what you'll make of this, but someone said to me, do you think Darlene is in fact the third altar? I've heard that theory before, but I think that it's um, been debunked in a few ways. And one, well, actually, no, I guess you can't really say that about this show because every theory could end up being true because you have such an unreliable narrator. But some evidence that I've heard about um, Elliot and Darlene being separate people is um, for one, that the FBI maps them as two different people on that big chart inside their office. So um, outside observers also see them as two people. But you could just say that that's because it was seen by Darlene and she also was Elliot. Oh, interesting. Interesting. I don't have any great theories about this particular question, but I'm interested in all the ones people are coming up with. Given how long they're making us wait for the reveal about who a third altar is, I can see why people would get desperate about it. So Darlene finishes uh, Sam sepioling Elliot on the phone, and um, then we get into our third storyline for this season. So the the third storyline is a Dom story. And I realized that this will all just be super awkward for you to talk about with your big sister. <laughs> yeah, you can say that. <laughs> yeah. But uh, Dom is, uh, sexting isn't the word. She's not texting. Um, but she's having an illicit chat with somebody named Happy Heart on Harry 806. Now, if anyone sees significance, the reference to, oh, is it Henry or Harry? I actually do. I do know significance about that because it was posted on Reddit. <laughs> oh, well, can you share this clever Redditor's insight? It's um, a reference to a previous um, role that Kristen Slater had done that was like Happy Heart Henry or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> nice, nice. And it's so uh, it's so good, this chat, that Dom is like nodding off and, and kind of falling asleep as it happens. So I'm not going to try and go into more detail about this. The one thing that I feel like is important for like the detail of the scene is that she's also watching the um, interrogation tape that has Darlene on it. So I was thinking about this because I think it's a really rare and unusual thing to see women masturbating on television. I can only maybe think of two other times I've ever seen that in a series. So I thought, okay, they're trying to be... I don't even think they're trying to be like spicy about it, to be honest. I think this whole storyline illustrates to me just, I think Dom is really alone and really looking for um, caring or affection or attention. And it's so sad that it's Christmas Eve. <laughs> yeah. And she just doesn't have anyone around her. And so I think, I think that's what I take from it is that, um, it just is, these are all symbols of how alone in the world she is right now. So I think that um, she really is very alone. And if I'm right about where she is, she's back in her own apartment without her mom. So she also is physically alone in the space. And I think that um, lonely is one of the things that really is a core feature of Dom. Um, 
but I think that another part of what she does is um, about control, which they go into a bit later in the episode. And I think that um, with it being specifically like interrogation videotape of um, Darlene, I think that maybe that's like part of it because of the incredibly strange power dynamic that happens in, a, in an interrogation like that. And I also wonder, like, what kind of ethics committee is letting her take these home? <laughs> I was trying to think about this, too, because it doesn't seem to me that Dom is the kind of person who takes her authority or power lightly. And so I thought, what's pushed her to a place where she would do something that's so inappropriate? Yeah, well, she's going under a lot of stress right now, I guess, to say the least. <laughs> um, there's something about Dom that makes me, like, really truly sad maybe the saddest moment in the episode later on so we'll get to that um when we come back to her apartment but let's move over to Elliot's apartment where Darlene has just arrived and found the note I guess that kind of gives her hints about why Elliot wasn't calling but I can see why it would make her even more worried does she use her signal hack that she had installed Oh, you know, that must have been it. I hadn't really thought about it. But yeah, I guess they were probably setting on a first episode. So good catch. Yeah. And so we know that she's trying to locate him and obviously very concerned. But now let's move back to what I think is, at least for me, one of the finest high comedy moments of this series. Uh, actually, I find there this episode is so sad, but it's punctuated by these truly uncomfortable hilarious scenes like this one with Terrell Elliot and Mr. Robot at a place that I think is called Solomon's Stop and Shop. Um I also read a different uh, cool catch online which is that Solomon is a character in a different um Albert Camus book, uh The Stranger. So it's another existentialist reference that we've been seeing a lot this season. Oh, interesting. Um an interesting thing and it's uh it's too complicated to unpack here, but in Camus' novels, someone inevitably ends up shooting and killing an Arab man. And so I don't know if that's supposed to be leading us somewhere with all these repeat references to Camus. Terrell is still being very calm and directive here. So um, he's filling an enormous gas can uh, for purposes we can imagine. Tells Elliot to go inside. I think Elliot wants a snow shovel. I think it would be really hard to dig a grave with a snow shovel, don't you? Yeah. I mean, unless it was in snow. That would be pretty easy. <laughs> then it would be pretty easy. Yeah, Terrell is really not Terrelling it at this point <laughs> in the episode. Uh, he's really in control of it. He tells them to go inside and pay for the gas uh, and get a lighter. And so I think the most astonishing thing, so it's Christmas Eve and the internet is down, so there's no e-coin which we know is kind of the dominant currency are you surprised Terrell has cash <laughs> a little but then I remember that he um he says later that he's wearing a six thousand dollar suit so he probably carries money just so he can like take it out and snap it or something <laughs> I guess he did have that bodyguard all that time who would kind of like pay people off and do different things so I guess untraceable currency is of value to him yeah I guess so I love the scene where the clerk thinks that she recognizes him. <laughs> I loved it too. And um, like you were saying, it is really funny and they do a good job of interspersing these funny moments and with what ends up being a really sad episode. But what's kind of cool about this scene is that 
even though it's so funny, there is a real sense of tension and kind of like a sort of Damocles where you wonder if she'll actually be able to ID him. Um, because there's a real threat that she could identify him. And I kind of would actually expect that that was something that he would have foreseen too. He tries to lie his way out of it and say that, you know, he's just got one of those faces. And what they settle on is she's sure she recognizes him because he was a contestant on Big Brother. And he decides to roll with it. <laughs> really good. Of course, another um, 1984 reference. Oh, that's true. I forget that that whole show is a reference to that book. <laughs> I've also heard that this whole episode is a reference to a, an episode in The Sopranos. Did you hear that too? I've heard that. And so if any of our listeners um, maybe know The Sopranos better than we do, um, we would welcome um, some help in understanding it. Because also someone pointed out that the macaroni and gravy reference from a previous episode that was also used in The Sopranos. Oh, wow. Yeah, I really need to start watching that. Do you notice the score as we're going along? I did, and um, I really loved it, to be honest. I kind of thought that it really brought this new atmosphere altogether. It's this, like, Halloween Christmas music. Like, it's beautiful and festive, but it's also sort of spooky. Yeah, yeah. I don't mean to call ahead a little bit, but I think that towards the end, or like the climax of the episode, um, they have a tune that really reminds me of the Home Alone jingle, and we know that they're... Yes. A lot of Home Alone references in this show, too. But um, they sure are able to take that kind of Christmassy tune and make it sound really spooky. And they should think it's spooky because when they come back with their lighter and I believe a pepperoni stick um, that Terrell's eating, <laughs> uh, the van is totally gone. At first, I admit it doesn't occur to me that the Dark Army soldier is still alive. I thought this was going to fork off into a story about the altar, like the other altar had moved it and none of them knew where it was. Oh, wow. Like, dude, where's my car? But that's very far-fetched, I think. <laughs> the question for me was if it was the driver who recovered or if they were kind of like tracked down in some way and then a different Dark Army person came and took it. Right. So this is uh, this is bad news bears uh, for these guys because their mode of transportation is gone. Um, this dark army operative is potentially out snitching on them right now. Um, this is where the tension starts to mount in the episode. Yeah. And not to mention on the bears. Not to mention on the bears. Let's talk about Darlene for a second. Uh, Darlene, who loves criminal activity, is uh, boosting a car. She makes it look so easy, too. I was trying to do some research on um, the tools that she had used here, but to be honest, it's something that's completely out of my elements is mostly like um, a web security person. So I kind of think that maybe it is legit, but I just couldn't actually. I think because modern cars are so heavily computerized, there certainly must be a way to hack into them the way that she's doing it. But I, I mean, certainly don't have that kind of expertise, but it felt plausible to me. I think also we we went to DEFCON this year and they have um, a workshop there that's about hacking automotives. I believe that there is something that's called like the onboard debugging bridge, maybe like ODB. And um, sort of like in a previous episode, they were saying that having physical access to something generally gives you root access to it as well. Um, the ODB ports of... Um, uh, vehicles, you can kind of plug into those and then get all kinds of diagnostic information about them. And um, I think that you can also do, them, do some things like take control of certain parts of them. So you could imagine a way that that could be hacked too. Whose car is she stealing? <laughs> well, um, she thinks that it's this crazy drunk Santa. I think this 
Santa is played by the actor who plays Counselor Jam on Parks and Recreation, but I and I should have confirmed that, but I think it's him. So I think normally a comedic actor. I think that it is like um, a, a character actor who they use just for this. Darlene tries to social engineer her way out of the situation and try to make him believe that it would be way more of a hassle for him to report her stealing the car than for her to just walk away and let him carry on with his evening. But he has a request for Darlene. <laughs> He's not really sure how many requests he has. And I really like um, how funny his dialogue is here. I think, I mean, this is the other truly comedic and it's so dark, this this storyline, the whole Santa story. Um, so he can't find his keys. He's obviously impaired. Darlene doesn't want any trouble, but she also, you know, being a good citizen, um, doesn't want to activate a car for a person to drive dangerously. So she decides to strike a bargain with him. <laughs> yeah, the way you put that does kind of make me look at it in a different way, because I was saying that they mix in these comedy parts with the more... Uh, dark and dramatic parts but even the comedy part is about uh a santa driving home drunk from sloan kettering so i don't really know how they could make anything more sad than that actually but uh i guess that this is um to say the writing's really good that they make that be so funny and i think every layer that we get in that story makes it sadder and sadder until it isn't when they finally relieve us of that tension later so for now, this is just really unfortunate. Um, but she makes a bargain with him. She'll drive him home, which apparently is in, I don't know, sounds like upstate New York somewhere. Uh, she'll drive him home, but then she gets to borrow the car after. So that will help her try to locate Elliot, who is now back at the gas station, because not only is there no internet, there's no cell reception or phone service. Yeah, and they're very far away from any sign of civilization. So I guess they need to figure out how to get home from here. The cashier, this is a very small town uh, to me. Um, I live in a small town where the cashier says there's no way to make a phone call or no way to get where they're going, but offers them a ride with her husband when he comes to pick her up, which they decline. I think uh, wisely. I think they wisely decline that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there are a lot of questionable decisions in this episode. I was wondering why Darlene got in the car with that guy, too. But at least a little more wise here. <laughs> they are trying to get to the closest town, to somewhere called Pike's Hollow. And she tells them that there's a shortcut to get there, but they have to walk. This is like saying, you know, you can have this mansion, but you have to spend one night in a haunted house. <laughs> there's a shortcut to town, but they have to walk 30 minutes through the dark woods in the snow. <laughs> Did you feel like this episode did bring in some kind of uh, horror elements? Because that would be kind of uh, an on-the-nose horror setup. It definitely does. Like, to me, it did feel very much like a Halloween episode, especially when we talk about the time that they spent in the woods. It certainly had some of those dimensions, and I appreciated them. Now, I had a question for you. Do you think... So Mr. Robot is kind of... Actually, is it Mr. Robot or Elliot who's being extremely aggressive and rude with the cashier? It's Mr. Robot, and I noted that because I was going to mention it too. I think that I've been trying to set up that Elliot has a meaner alter ego that um, is talking to Darlene when they're at all safe and other kind of situations like that, or um, Sam Sepiel, as you mentioned earlier. Um, but because it's um, Mr. Robot who's being aggressive here, that kind of... Um, makes that a bit of a more difficult argument to make because if it's Elliot's alter, then why is Mr. Robot behaving that way? 
Now, because he's so rude, do you think the cashier deliberately misleads them with her directions? I immediately thought that she would, but it's hard to say if it was her fault or not. I can't tell because she seems like she's just trying to make the best of a bad situation and maybe shame them a little bit uh, for their lack of manners. But I also thought, you know, is she the kind of person who would send them out to wander around in sub-zero temperatures in the dark uh, to punish them for that transgression? Yeah, actually, they might have died, so I would hope not. She realizes at some point that she knows his face because he's Terrell Wellick and she recognizes him from the news because he's the E-Corp guy. And I think one of the funniest lines in this whole episode is when she says, I didn't know you were on Big Brother. (laughs) I really like that too. They decide they're going to take the shortcut uh, through the haunted woods. Uh, What could go wrong? (laughs) I guess we'll find out. Let's go back to sad and alone land. Um, Back to the Dom storyline. Dom, it sounds like this is like a regular person that she chats with, maybe. And I think maybe we're all a bit surprised that this is, well, Harry or Henry, I keep mixing it up. (laughs) Um, A dude who decides to ask her if she'd like to meet up with him in real life. Um, When she tells him that she doesn't have sex with men, they reveal that, in fact, they're also a woman uh, behind their keyboard. So it does sound like a pretty strange situation, and we can see why all of these kind of dominoes fall into place. But when I was watching it, it didn't really seem actually that unusual to me. Except I really was thinking that Dom was not using her best judgments, especially um, uh, by inviting people over to her home. But um, aside from that, I just thought that it kind of was speaking a bit to her loneliness. I think that also... um, There have been scenes before that established her using IRC for this purpose, which also is kind of funny because um, she goes on the Freenode IRC network, which is one of one of like it's either the biggest one or the second biggest one. And it's almost entirely used for like um, programming stuff. I feel like if you were to go on that network, it would just be a super boring time. (laughs) But um, yeah, um, I think that's. what they, were, what they were doing was like returning to existing behaviors for Dom, especially now that she's back home. She's doing some things uh, that we'd seen her do in earlier seasons. I mean, she does seem to be having a pretty boring time. So I think your read is not inaccurate. I have a note here that says uh, this is very bad security culture, Dom. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> she invites them to her home, decides she's going to give them her address. And that's when they cut back to the scene in the woods. And I just haven't noticed that Terrell has no hat and it must be very cold. I figure he could handle it. Yeah. I mean, I guess Sweden's cold. (laughs) It's probably fine. Um, Terrell is kind of fantasizing about what would happen if they just bailed, bailed on this whole scheme, bailed on all their responsibilities. If they just found some peace and quiet enjoyment. And this kind of called back to me to the scenes where Chen is trying to persuade Zhang that they should just, you know, take off and start a new life. Yeah, I guess that is kind of a theme that they're revisiting. I thought that um, one kind of like practical story bit about that, that I probably um, would have overlooked if I didn't see other people investigating it more. And it might be nothing. It might also be something else that's going to come back later. But um do you remember a few episodes ago when Dom was um, interviewing somebody and she was interrupted by the agent who was saying that um, 
the person had committed suicide. Yes. So the person she was interviewing then was like a specialist who um, would erase people's identities, basically. And I wonder if maybe that's something that um, she or some of these other characters will do to kind of just get away from the dangers that they're in. Oh, that's a really good thought. Because I think if anyone's looking for an exit strategy from this, it's her. That's so interesting. Um, We'll have to see what comes to pass and if they kind of revisit that character. Because also it would seem sort of odd for them just to introduce that character and then let that hang, you know? Yeah. And I think that he only had a few lines, but they were very impactful. They were. So maybe we'll see more of them in the future. So back to the woods. Back to the woods. We start hearing... This is where it gets really Halloween-y for me. We start hearing howling animal it's so scary um the lighting uh like in addition to the environments it's unusual to see the episode be so dark like visually dark and actually it's really hard to keep track of things at times it's interesting because they hypothesize at different times about whether it's a wolf or a dog or a coyote and so i took a gander at my uh, dictionary of symbolism and it's interesting because the wolf is a symbol associated with life Mm -hmm. But dogs and coyotes are symbols associated with death. And there are three of them. There are three. So it may be nothing, um, but it also, it pulls in both directions. I don't know what to make of the examples. Um, But it's really unnerving to hear them howling. And I think this starts to bring things into focus for Terrell, who is realizing now that the cashier saw his face, called him by name, could identify him uh, when this inevitably goes badly because i think they're starting to see that uh there's no graceful exit i think that we can kind of consider this moment of desperation to be sort of similar to what had happened to freddie at the beginning of the series where he knows that these people have almost um omnipotent control of uh, his entire situation and now that he's kind of gotten himself into this mess um maybe there's not really a good way out of it maybe not and i think Sometimes when you know there's no way out of a situation, it frees you from a role you've been playing or expectations you've been living up to. And maybe that's what lets Terrell be um, more forthcoming, more expressive with Elliot in the conversations that they have in the rest of the episode. He starts singing uh, what we learn is a Swedish Christmas song. (laughs) And we learn a bit more about that in our forthcoming interview. We do, uh, where Martin actually is able to tell us what it's called. Uh, He sings the whole song. Yeah, they can sing the whole song. (laughs) So um, Terrell calls Elliot out on his wardrobe. (laughs) And I felt called out myself because that's exactly how I dress. See, I felt called out because in this situation, I'm more a Terrell (laughs) because... I'm the outsider who cares. I'm the outsider who wants to please people and meet expectations and live up to those things that people put on you. So I actually identify with him in this. Yeah, I think that like um, this is a bit of his character that we've understood about how invested he is and what other people think about him in a way. I didn't mean to relate that so much to what you just said about yourself, but um, I was thinking back to like the um, the first season with the Scott Newell scene where they're like fighting over who has the better watch, and um, it kind of was um, a sentiment to how Tyrell's character was so based on material status. I didn't take any offense, by the way. I think I admire people who don't care about those things that I try not to care about. (laughs) Um, I wonder, 
one thing maybe I wish I'd asked Martin is, I wonder why Terrell would see themselves as an outsider. Yeah, you know, that's a good question. I mean, we do kind of get the impression that it's really Joanna who's behind most of his career ambitions. And um, I feel like aside from that, he does, he's pretty included in the sense that like he goes to wealthy dinner parties and stuff like that. Wouldn't you agree? That's, I guess that's it. I guess maybe he has the social markers of inclusion, but maybe never feels a part of that world. And I was thinking back to, do you remember, this might be one of my favorite Terrell moments where he just hauls off and fires that whole room of homophobes. (laughs) Oh yeah. You know, I also think that like maybe, um, and I mean to get too deep into the Tyrelliot ship, but considering the um, emotions that he expresses in this episode towards uh, towards Elliot and how he kind of makes it more explicit that he cares about him so much, maybe there also is some kind of like underlying homophobia in his character that makes him feel like an outsider. Because he also had that like hookup in the first season, right? Yes, and I think there was some there was some confirmation in an interview maybe that Esmail did where they said something like, oh, you know, well, Tyrell's like a little bit of both worlds. Oh, and he's a little bit of both, if you know what I mean. So I, I think we do have the sense, and maybe that's why he feels outside and in corporate America at that kind of level. I have to assume that's still a hard place to inhabit as a queer person, uh, even if you're a man and, and white and all those things. It would be kind of funny if we had at first criticized the pilot for having a kind of um, strange approach to explaining Gideon's sexuality. I think that we described him as like a token character. But now it seems like they have so many fully developed um, LGBT characters that it was silly to have criticized them. Well, no, I'll stand by it because I think what we critiqued about it was that it comes out of nowhere. Like Gideon's like... (laughs) Can I get you a cup of coffee? P.S. I'm gay. Like it just it's a very weird revelation for like a boss to make to an employee in a weird way. I still I still maintain that the way that happens is super unnatural. Yeah. And no, I think that I can agree with that. I just mean that like we've got um, Dom since then. And uh, of course, White Rose. Absolutely. And Darlene. And uh, I think Elliot might be the only straight one left. <laughs> so <laughs> I think the complexity uh has increased for for all those storylines and i appreciate them to get back to the episode so this episode i found it was in my view anyway kind of short on plot and long on character development i don't know if you'd agree i kind of felt like it was mostly a visual showcase because um there wasn't a lot of plot developments but aside from those big shocking moments there wasn't really a lot of character developments either i think that in fact with um dom's entire storyline like there wasn't very much change about what they were showing us about her because it was more like demonstrating that she was revisiting her past behaviors. So that, that whole plot line didn't really develop very much. I think the only significant thing we get there is, I mean, her last words to Darlene were, you're the most terrible person that ever lived, live with that, die with that, is that there's still some place in her head or her heart for Darlene. I guess that is a good way to look at that, yeah. Well, I was trying to think, what's the value of this whole scene? Because I don't think it's just gratuitous. And I thought, I think that's what we're supposed to take from from the beginning of, of this episode for Dom. Mm-hmm. But Terrell and Elliot are in a, in a worse situation out in the woods. Um, and this is where, um, I don't think Terrell starts Terrelling it yet, but it's coming. Because he realizes that they're going to die out there. And maybe, he says, maybe not tonight, but soon. Yeah, I would describe this as like the phases of pre-Tyrell. 
Yes, it's the uh, it's the anticipatory phase. Um, I actually wanted to say because I think a lot especially in the scenes in the woods about, you know, socially sanctioned ways that men get to interact with each other, especially when they care for each other. And I think one thing I really like about the Terrell character is he has a broader range of feelings. You know, he cries. He has feelings that aren't just anger. So I actually have a lot of respect for that because I think that's hard to do as a man because I think it's easier to do what Elliot does And, you know, kind of have an angry outburst. And I think more people support that than they would. And I've been flippant kind of calling it Terrelling it. But, you know, in in understanding a man who expresses that broader range of uh, of sensitivities and emotions. Right. And I think that um, the broad range of emotions that Tyrell experiences is one of the things that um, Martin had talked about in our forthcoming interview with him. I heard that it was challenging to kind of have to um, demonstrate that range that you were talking about. They hear traffic and run towards the road. I think the car is going to be Darlene. Did you think that? I thought that for sure. I think that they kind of set up the shots to correspond with uh, Darlene riding on the car to give you that impression. So that just makes it all the more disappointing when you see that it isn't. That's not the most disappointing thing, because even though they've been out in the cold for hours, when they get back to the road, they think they must be close to town. But really, they've just walked in a complete circle and they're back at the gas station. I really like this metaphor about how um, they're kind of just going around in circles. It seemed a lot like um, that's... early uh, early scene from season one that we kind of dissected a little bit where Angela was running and she was confronted with two different paths. And um, it's really just a way for them to take the plot and actually visualize it into the landscape. Um, I also think that this says a lot about the um, existentialist uh, subtext of the season. Time is a flat circle, so they say. <laughs> Literally in this case. They're really making good use of visuals. So they cut back to Darlene. She's driving. She learns that Santa has an annual tradition of going into the city and getting absolutely loaded after he spends a day playing Santa for um, very ill and some terminally ill, I believe, children in a hospital. Yeah, with his character, I feel like it's real roller coaster of emotions where you're like wait he's good he's bad he's good he's bad i kind of expected him to be like the frozen yogurt is also cursed but you get your choice of toppings <laughs> that's bad he reminds me of um you didn't watch arrested development did you uh no what was the reference you're making so the reference is there's a doctor in arrested development who just frames everything wrong so he'll say things like your father is no longer with us and then when the whole family is like crying and shocked he'll say He discharged himself half an hour ago. (laughs) So that's what this Santa is to me. Like everything is set up perfectly to be misinterpreted. You know, he couldn't say it in a way that lent itself better to the interpretation Darlene gives. (laughs) And I think this tells us something about Darlene's frame of mind where she's watching... And again, this is maybe content warning because she's watching for signs of um, of suicidal ideation in him. And we have to think that because of Elliot, she is probably pretty familiar with trying to de-escalate this kind of situation. Yeah, and she uses some pretty impressive um, de-escalation skills throughout this whole episode. I thought that the way that she kind of segued from um, first being interrogated by Drunk Santa about stealing the car um, into kind of a conversation where she was seeming friendly... It seems like almost there was like a light switch for her to turn into this mode of behavior. I have a note that says she might be a pretty good social worker. 
<laughs> That's just applied social engineering. Although I guess engineering is applied by definition. <laughs> I think they're analogous. I, I think they are uh, with different goals, maybe. But she is really escalating or her um, attempts to keep the situation under control. Once he mentions that his wife was in a horrible accident um, and he has uh, a bottle of alcohol, but also a bottle of uh, oxycodone, maybe? Uh, Percocet. Or Percocet. I only remember because it's on the screen in front of me right now. <laughs> he calls the booze a nipper. And I remember the first time I was in Boston was the first time I ever heard people call tiny bottles of alcohol little nips. <laughs> so or nips. Wow. Yeah. So it's uh, f- fond memories of, uh, of being in Boston. That sounds like a SoundCloud rapper. <laughs> little nips. <laughs> it does. Um, let's talk about Dom. I'm I'm so scared for Dom. Um, because I mean, she's got a stranger in her house and nobody else knows that she's there. Yeah. And that's why I had so many like alarm bells going off in this episode. Um, I think that like, it all becomes clear a little bit later, but, um, Dom's behavior seems really uncharacteristic for her right now. Really erratic, um, kind of. And, um, the the woman who comes over, uh, I don't think we ever get her name, but with the dark curly hair, um, she says that she had thought Dom's apartment would be more organized. <laughs> and I thought that her apartment was pretty organized this, uh, this episode. It's not like in the other ones where she's had takeout containers everywhere. And maybe look around my own apartment more carefully, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, this is where you mentioned earlier uh, we get a little bit of an idea about the importance of control for Dom. And so uh, I was batting back and forth with, it's a Twitter user, Darlene's Dom, about what astrological sign Dom might be. And uh, they had guessed a Taurus. Now I'm leaning Taurus. I'm with you now, uh, Darlene's Dom. That's the, uh, <laughs> that's the username. Um, Can you speak a bit about that to people who don't know what that means? Oh, so I had thought Dom was an Aquarius because I think they're kind of interested in ideas of justice and they're like kind of busy people. Uh, but I think Tauruses have sort of rigid frameworks about what's right and wrong and about, you know, the value of order. So that's why I think Darlene's Dom may be correct that uh, she may be a Taurus, but, uh, you know, oh, yeah. all will be revealed in okay. time. I think that's um, that's how some people refer to it, and then other people would refer to it as like lawful neutral. Yes, they are lawful neutrals. I think that's what they are. <laughs> um, look at that bath that she's prepared. Where did she get rose petals on Christmas Eve? That would take so much work, and I can just imagine like needing to light off those candles one by one. This woman seems to be into her, and I'm hoping for like a nice fun time for Dom, but Dom never gets to have a nice fun time. Yeah, it seems to me like actually as soon as Dom walks in the room, she's kind of like, this is beautiful, but who set this up? What is going on? And it made me think um, if I was right in that interpretation, it would mean that this woman or other dark army people had already been in and set up her apartment. So um the next thing we see is a, a really frightening image of the woman wearing a dark army mask and coming in to attack Dom in the bath. Exactly. So she's, I mean, essentially waterboarding her um, to remind her that she'll never be free. I would say my criticism of this episode, and this I, I think is just a matter of personal taste. Um, I really dislike dreams as storytelling devices. Yeah, because they're kind of like a blank check, right? I think so. Like, and this show doesn't need a blank check. Like, think about the 
totally hallucinatory, surreal sequences we've had in this show. I would have loved to have seen this story in that mode of storytelling, but I really, I feel like dreams are like a cheat code almost. <laughs> yeah, that's a great way to put it. The only value I see in them is that by demarcating that this one story is a dream, to me, it has to mean that the other two stories are real. Oh, that's actually a great point. But yeah, that's very worth considering, and it adds a few more layers to it. Um, there was one other kind of bit that I wanted to dive into, which is that um, I think that there is a bad way to show dreams. And um, in a way, the show does do a bit of that, because the use of dreams to spell out to you that one of Dom's fears is of losing control or... Um, that's control is something that she seeks in her life and um, maybe one of her shortcomings in her personality. But I think that's um, in that first layer, like that's looking at the dream, analyzing it and considering it to be character development in and of itself. But um, I think that's um, if we call back to, I believe season two, we had the scene with Dom confronting Angela in her apartment and um for one that had the similarity and that's um like it was a stranger going into someone else's apartment so it sort of mirrors the situation but dom says that she never remembers her dreams and the dream that she describes at that point um is the one that we finally see unfold here where she's kept underwater and um she's struggling until she gives up control so for one um that does tell you a bit about Dom as a as a character and like what their dreams are like. But just the fact that it's also a recurring dream and it's a character who rarely has dreams, I feel like that's kind of like a bit of a layer on top of it that says that they're returning to old behaviors and that they're under extreme periods of stress, which would be true kind of regardless of what the content of the dreams was. You know, that's really valuable and it makes me see it in a bit of a different light if this is a character where dreams aren't important. And then all of a sudden, you know, we get this extended sequence from them. I think the time spent on it should show significance. And so I, I value that you brought that up because I actually didn't recall that point. Um, the saddest point in this whole episode for me, and this is going to sound crazy, is when you see Dom's real dirty bathtub. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I mean, we've all been there. <laughs> I just don't First, I also felt like her bathtub would be cleaner, <laughs> but it's more just that there's no fanciness or niceness or softness about it at all. Like it's just a stained tub with a clear plastic curtain liner around it. So it just shows to me, maybe this is someone who doesn't spend a lot of time caring for themselves or investing in making things nice for themselves. And that really makes me very sad. Yeah, well, I think that, like, um, with Dom, she's just a character who kind of has her work life, and then at home she goes to bed, or she talks to people online. Um, the shots of her apartment before t have tended to have, like, liquor bottles and takeout containers everywhere and been kind of messy. So I think that um, what it is trying to portray, like you were saying, is that she's kind of lonely. She's not taking care of herself. It's really, like, all the signs of um, depression. And now that's also her job has been taken from her, which is the thing she would be filling up her time with, um, she's probably in even more distress. Let's talk about Darlene arriving at Tobias, drunk Santa's house. <laughs> I loved how um, fancy his house was. 
So when I saw it, I remember thinking something wasn't right because I just felt like a man who didn't have a wife or a family wouldn't have decorated their house so much. I guess you never saw that episode of King of the Hill. No, no, I'm very, I'm like 10 years behind. (laughs) Oh no, everything that happened in King of the Hill. No, that's just a joke. But I think that um, it, it does kind of give you a bit of a hint that your impression of this character wasn't completely right. Everything we thought about this character is completely wrong. So Darlene essentially starts to try suicide intervention with him. And he's totally taken aback because the story he was telling was sort of a fanciful yarn weaving in um, the story of It's a Wonderful Life. (laughs) <laughs> because you're so much more well-read than me. I was wondering if you might have caught this. So the only thing, um, I looked up the Steinbeck quote. So one thing that really scares Darlene is that Drunk Santa says, goodbye is short and final. And so I don't know Steinbeck very well, but the full quote is, farewell has a sweet sound of reluctance. Goodbye is short and final. A word with teeth sharp to bite the string that ties past to the future. Wow. You know, I didn't mean to, I probably shouldn't say this right now because I'll mention it again in a, in a different episode, but there was one thing that I wanted to get to later that might be kind of relevant now. And um, in 403, I was kind of comparing the subtle differences between a 401 error and a 403 error, being um, whether a person can even be asked for credentials or even just they're not allowed to begin with, period, no can do. Um the title for the 10th episode is um, 410 Gone. And Gone is very similar to Not Found, which is the title of this episode. The difference is that when it comes to Not Found, it's to say that um, uh, they just couldn't find the resource. Um, maybe it was um, moved or maybe it just like didn't exist to begin with. Whereas with um, 410 Gone... The difference is that they're saying that the resource had existed in the past, but it's irrevocably been deleted. Um, You can't find it anywhere else, and you should also not bother asking again. So it's kind of like a more final form of the 404 era, where you're saying that um, not only is it gone, but it's gone for good. Thank you for making the distinction between those two things, because I wouldn't have known that. I mean, unfortunately, I don't think that's going to rescue anyone who is still hopeful, and I think a number of people are, that this episode is not final. Um, (laughs) People have been asking me about that and how I know that it's final, and I'm just like, I talked to him like 15 minutes ago, okay? Yeah, I know. And also, we talked to him, and it was also confirmed in Hollywood Reporter. So, um, But I do understand the desire to believe. Um, It's a well-loved character. Uh, But back to Darlene. So I think what we see here is that her heart's still good in spite of everything that's happened and her heart exterior. And she talks about, this is a question I have, um, how she lost everything. She lost her boyfriend, her best friend, her parents. Who is she referring to when she refers to her best friend? Um, Good question. Angela? They didn't, I mean, maybe it tells us something about Darlene where I thought they weren't that close, but that still could have been the best friend she had. I'm thinking back to how they recorded the cassette tape earlier. Cause oh, that kind yeah. of made me think that there was more to that than we had known. The only other thing I could think is that the version of Elliot, who was her best friend seems sort of lost to her, or maybe there's something I'm not seeing, but I, I had trouble thinking of who that best friend 
was for her. It seems like she's also forgotten about Cisco, Trenton, and Mobley, who all died like within the past few months. Well, she mentions her boyfriend. She mentions Cisco. Oh, I wonder if it was Trenton, the best friend. Oh, actually, yeah, that could be it. Oh, because they had some nice moments. Oh, poor. So I guess it was you who forgot about her. <laughs> oh, it wasn't the whole episode called Don't Forget Me or something? Oh my god. Wow, yeah. We said we never forget. I'm the worst. I'm the worst. Uh, let's go back to the woods um, where Terrell is starting to really Terrell. Terrell says to Elliot, whatever we're walking towards ends with death. And it seems so small, but a, a line that really sticks to me is when he says there's a rock in his shoe and he stops to fish it out. And this seems like a classic, you know, when the small thing stands for a big thing. Because this really unleashes uh, all of his worries and fears and and I think complaints about the lack of reciprocity in um, in his relationship with Elliot. Mm-hmm. And um, he kind of talks a bit more about what his relationship with Elliot is and what expectations he has. And I think those expectations are high. Surprisingly high, considering there hasn't been any reciprocity yet. Oh, this is so sad. Um, Because Elliot kind of continuing the way he's been acting this season is so cold. Tells me never cared about him. Um, You know, Tyrell says, you know, you never needed me. You never cared about me. Elliot really does nothing but confirm that for him. Yeah, they're definitely making Elliot seem like a bit of an asshole this season, to say the least. <laughs> Maybe that is his uh, third ulcer, but that's really uh, questionable right now. I'm going to forget uh, who said this, um, but someone smarter than me on Twitter had thought maybe that without our access to his interior monologue, like without that conversation between the audience and Elliot that sort of motivates or explains or excuses things, he is kind of an asshole. Yeah, well, I think that, like, we can compare it to that famous um, Sam Sepiel scene where he's trash-talking the host at um, Steel Mountain. Um, Like, he was obviously able to really tear into that person there, and it actually was so brutal that we still feel sorry for him. We have an apology scene, like, ten episodes later. But um, because we have the context of his inner monologue, it kind of makes it seem more justifiable. So maybe the fact that we don't have that makes him seem more cruel. But unlike with the Sam Sepiol situation, um, I struggle to think of what his ulterior motive could be for being such a jerk. I think that he does this kind of losing his mind. I'm sure it's that. I'm sure. I mean, his time is running out. He needs to accomplish this task for White Rose in the next six days or his fate is really uncertain. And I think, too, this goes back to what I was saying about the ways that men feel sanctioned to express their feelings, where I think for Elliot, it's perfectly acceptable for him to be sullen and moody and have outbursts. Um, And what's probably really hard for him to do is to walk back to Terrell and tell him that he's the only person who maybe ever even really liked him. And we see that as much as Elliot might not want it to be or might not want to say it, that's important. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like um, just the way he would phrase that kind of made me see this interaction to be sort of similar to the ones that he has with Krista. Because um, in a sense, they're kind of like therapeutic or at least cathartic for him. And um, he also does a lot of screaming in them. So I think that maybe that just is how he knows to express himself and how... um, he's able to deal with his own negative emotions 
Um, I also remember that in that first meeting with Krista that he had, um, one thing that she had said was that um, he wasn't shouting anymore, like he wasn't having angry outbursts. And I think at the time we wondered what was going on there because it wasn't something that um, they really continued with his character in the first season that much. But maybe that's a bit of foreshadowing for what's to come with his um, really erratic behavior in this season. Elliot admits that he knows they're going to die, uh, but he wants an opportunity to warn Darlene in case she can save herself. And that's when Terrell kind of steals himself and gets up um, so that the two of them can get this call made and maybe spare her from whatever fate they're going to meet. Maybe a stupid question, but has Tyrell ever met Darlene? I can't think of any scene that they're in together, but I haven't carefully reviewed it. Yeah, I couldn't think of anything either because um, Tyrell kind of peaced out from the arcade around the time when Darlene came back to it in the first season. So it seems like actually he probably has no idea who she is. No, he's doing this for Elliot. I see what you mean there. They start walking again uh, through the woods. And that's at first I think it's a deer that's had its throat ripped out. But I guess it's been hit by a car and mangled pretty badly. And so first I think maybe it was Darlene's car, um, but it's worse. It's that white dark army van. And um, the shots they have here of them approaching the van in the dark, uh, the three of them all together in their distinctive outfits, I I thought these were gorgeous and they're probably going to be some of the best shots that we see out of the series. They're so good and there's something so moving to me about... So now Terrell is on a suicide mission. He knows he's going to die. There's nothing in this for him. He's trying to accomplish something for Elliot that's valuable to him. He's in front when they're walking to the van. So he's literally in the line of fire for these guys. I may be reaching a little bit here, but as he's kind of like coming up on the um, the driver's side of the car um, and knowing what happens next, it had a bit of um, echoes of Joanna's death to me where you have like a gunfight that goes from the car uh, outside of it oh i didn't even think of that but of course of course and so terrell i forget that he has a gun i guess he maybe brandished it at one other point while they were in the woods um there's a bit of a a firefight between him and the dark army soldier dark army guy dies and we see a second later that terrell has sustained a pretty bad wound himself I actually thought that the Dark Army guy killed himself after he oh, shot did Tyrell. He? I thought so, but it's like a really quick shot. I mean, like cinema, cinematography, but I don't mean he shot himself quickly. But No, I see. Yeah. Right, Maybe I misinterpreted what had happened. You think he shot Tyrell and then shot himself? That's what I think. Okay. Kind of in the two, the two times he looks in the window, I think that both of those things happen really quickly. And, um, you know, we're always calling back to um, Chekhov's gun. But um, did you notice, like, the shot they had on the gun inside the van at the beginning of the episode? I don't think so. When, like, they're kind of, like, um, panning along a shelf full of Pringles and there's a gun in the way. <laughs> they must have been planning this from the beginning. <laughs> well, he must have known he would need some protection potentially because this situation i mean how could the situation go well really um terrell says no to the hospital um, because that's going to blow up this whole thing uh i like how pragmatic he is he says to burn the van burn all the evidence Uh, but elliot doesn't feel right about just leaving him or not doing anything to help him 
Yeah, I think that um, when you say that if he goes to a hospital, it'll blow things up. It's important to clarify that if um, they actually find out that he's dead, then he obviously won't be able to be the new CEO. So that will really throw off um, White Rose's plan. So we can see how this kind of um, little hiccup is actually going to have some huge consequences for the story as a whole, because it means that um, even if White Rose is able to get this meeting in place, they won't have a nominee. So hopefully because Tyrell is able to um, put off on news of his death, maybe then they'll still be able to appoint him in absentia. When he says to Elliot, take care of White Rose, do you think he means look out for White Rose or do you think he means destroy White Rose? I, I think that it was like unambiguously about destruction. And I think that kind of like with um, Angela at this point, Tyrell is just out for retribution because um, he's really lost everything. And um, at this point, he's lost so much that he's not really seeing his own life as worth living for. I think um, one thing that he kind of um, probably is thinking about is his son and how that's, the Dark Army still might have a bit of control over him and how... Um, uh, he needs to kind of play his cards just right to make sure that his um, son is still able to live. Elliot says, I can't just let you die. And Terrell says, that's fine. I'm just going to go for a walk. Oh, that's so sad. I got to say the acting in this episode is really good. I really thought Wallstrom did a great job. Carly Chaikin is so good in this episode. Um, I just, I really enjoyed it for that. Yeah, in this episode, it really feels like um, it's just something really nice to take in for its its visual qualities and all of um, the great acting that's in it. I think that that kind of makes up for how the plot development is a little sparse. Um, because even in spite of that, it probably is one of my favorites so far. Tyrell walks off into the woods. We still hear the howling. And he sees something on the ground um, emitting light. And to me... I, I didn't know if that was sort of like a, you know, walk into the light, my son, like a sort of a light and a, a kind of peace and a comfort that only Terrell can see. I definitely experienced that way. And especially because they had a really, um, I was going to say uncharacteristic, but I think so far it's actually unique because they fade to white instead of fade to black at the end. So I think that um, by having it be kind of... Uh, dominated by like this red and blue shades as he's seeing the light and then having it fade into blue it's kind of supposed to be a more metaphorical description of the character dying although um it, i could definitely believe that it was something else but just um bearing in mind what else we know and the context that we can see it in now i think that's the only way that you can take it in or watch three episodes from now it'll be a surprise twist and it'll be a time travel device and i'll have no idea what to make of it but for now i think it's a metaphorical light <laughs> Imagine if they just played us for promotional purposes. Imagine. <laughs> I was in social engineering. So this, uh, I agree, this is also one of my uh, favorite episodes so far. I think that's a divisive opinion. So we'll look forward to hearing from listeners. Um, thank you so much for listening this week. Thank you again uh, to Martin Wallstrom, uh, who spent some time with us. We hope you'll check out his interview as well. We hope you enjoy that. Um, we'll be right back with you for episode five. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Aaron. I'm Devlin. Bonsoir.